This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, it's Pia. Every Wednesday, we are bringing you a bonus podcast, a handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we really think is worth hearing. Of course, you can hear all of our stories. They're all worth listening to. <laughs> on the full podcast we put out Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. An Indigenous community displaced, only to strike oil. But just when it seemed their fortunes were turning, a deeper betrayal. Dozens of members of the Osage Nation in Oklahoma were murdered in the 1920s, and the deaths went ignored by law enforcement for years. It's a true story, one that was turned into a book in 2017, and now it's been made into a Hollywood movie by Martin Scorsese. Killers of the Flower Moon opens in theaters in Canada this weekend. The film is based on journalist David Grant's book by the same name. And David was helped in his research by members of the Osage Nation who had family connections to the deaths, including the current Osage chief, Jeffrey Standing Bear, whose great-grandfather was chief during that time. David and Chief Standing Bear, hello to you. Hello. Thank you. David, let's start by just getting some background here for people who don't know this event, these events, this story. What happened? Yeah, so um, the Osage have been driven off uh, over centuries off their ancestral lands, uh, more than 100 million acres. And eventually they were confined uh, to a reservation in northeast Oklahoma. Most whites had kind of considered this territory worthless because it was rocky and infertile. Um, and the Osage thought, you know, a chief had stood up and said, you know, our people will be happy there because whites will finally leave us alone. And then uh, it turned out that this land was sitting upon uh, some of the largest reserves of oils then ever discovered in the United States. And each uh, Osage on the tribal role was given a head right, which was essentially a share in this mineral trust. And gradually, as more oil was tapped, their wealth grew until in the year uh, 1923 alone, they received what will be worth today more than $400 million. And they become among the wealthiest people per capita in the world. And uh, they lived in large houses. They had servants, some of whom were white. And then they began to die under these very mysterious and sinister circumstances. There were poisonings. There were shootings. There was even a bombing. Uh, and this period became known as the Osage Reign of Terror. What was being done about the killings as they happened? Because they didn't happen all at once, as you say. Well, many of the Osage are, uh, were crusading for justice and uh, going to the authorities with what evidence they collected, demanding investigations. And yet because of deep prejudice at the time, uh, and because there was widespread corruption and complicity in law enforcement, these crimes were ignored. And even a few of those who dared to try to investigate the case or get help, they themselves were killed. There was one man who went to Washington, D.C., whom the Osage had sent to try to get federal authorities to look into these cases. He checked into a boarding house and he had received a telegram from Oklahoma that said, be careful. And he left the boarding house that night and he was abducted. And his body was found in a culvert uh, the next morning, and he'd been stabbed and beaten to death. 
And a Washington Post headline uh, said what the Osage had long already knew. It's a conspiracy to kill rich American Indians. This was such a tragedy, Chief Standing Bear. It isn't just history for you and many other members of the Osage Nation. How, how were you taught about the time known as a reign of terror when you were growing up? We were not talking about it. The uh, people of my grandparents' generation uh, were in their 20s and 30s. And growing up in that time, uh, we did know that they had fabulous wealth wonderful cars, servants, even bought uh, biplanes to uh, fly around and uh, have uh, fake dogfights with each other. It was a time of uh, immense wealth uh, and also great tragedy. But we did not talk about it except uh, uh, little hints here and there when you overheard them talking to the elders to each other. We hear and are learning a lot about in our country and um, yours too about intergenerational trauma and stories sometimes weren't told because of that trauma and as the term suggests it's passed along how is the trauma of that period still impacting families of the osage nation uh, if i might uh, illustrate this uh, in the fact that of our twenty-five thousand osage people about five thousand or less live in our home plan now even though this is a place where we said is our final home after being pushed from Missouri and through Kansas here. And uh, of that uh, 25,000 people, more than half do not even live in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, this uh, exodus uh, from uh, to this place needs to be replaced with an exodus of return, which is why we're working so hard here to uh, build food sustainability, cultural sustainability, and to uh, rebuild our language uh, that took such a hit, uh, not mm. only in the 1920s uh, with all the uh, social disruptions, but prior to this in the 19th century, uh, those federal policies of the United States government were often marked by brutality. So uh, we are recovering again, and I think uh, this time uh, we must say uh, we need to educate ourselves, we need to take care of each other to make sure this doesn't happen again. You know, when I was doing the research, I interviewed people like the chief and um, many descendants of people who had suffered from that period. And one of the people I interviewed was a descendant of Molly Burkhardt, who is um, the center of my book and featured in the film, whose family is being systematically targeted. Her name was Margie. And when you talk to people like Margie and you talk to others and the chief, you know, when they tell you these stories and this history, I mean, Margie uh, always said to me, you know, I didn't get to grow up with cousins because so many of her um, ancestors, her aunts or great aunts uh, um, were killed. Um, and you realize that this is really living history. And I think it's important to understand that we are not talking about that long ago. We're really talking about recent history. We're talking about a century ago. And so this history still reverberates to, the, to this day. But I also think it's important to under, underscore, and I, the chief really made this point, and, um, which is that history doesn't stop. And so we're obviously talking about these tragedies. But, you know, one of the things that always strikes me every time I visit the nation um, over the years is that it is such a vibrant nation uh, led by the chief here. And, you know, they have their own constitution, their own Congress. They have found new forms of wealth. And I always think of this one quote that, an Osage lawyer has actually told me when I was visiting with the dances and actually the first time I met the chief and she had told me, 
you know, we were victims of these crimes, but we don't live as victims today. David, you mentioned Molly, one of the central characters uh, of your book, Molly Kyle and her husband, um, Ernest Burkhart. They're played by uh, Lily Gladstone and Leonardo DiCaprio in the film. Of course, this these events affected so many people. Why did you choose to focus on that particular relationship? What did their experiences say that it, that's so big? Yeah, I mean, to me, no family was more brutally targeted than Molly's family. But that relationship was very representational on what transpired, what happened to Molly. Molly's story is really representational of what was happening broadly. And so you can really focus in on that story to tell the larger story. And Molly was really a remarkable woman. She straddled not only two centuries, but two civilizations. Uh, She very boldly crusades for justice when her family is being targeted, um, often putting a bullseye on her back. And ultimately, she is betrayed. And her betrayal by somebody whom she had loved or thought she had loved and whom she thought had loved her um, is indicative and gets to the very heart of this sin and this betrayal that took place um, for the Osage back in the early 20th century. Chief Standing Bear, when Martin Scorsese got the rights to make Killers of the Flower Moon into a film, you spoke with him about some concerns you had what was that conversation like? David uh, was introduced to our community by a respected elder, Catherine Redcorn, who was director of our museum. And uh, she began to open doors. He stepped through there and in a respectful way found a, a conversation uh, about this era and met with some of our elders who had kept records, who had uh, good histories. And... Um, my role really did not come into significant action until I met Marty Scorsese. And he came in and said, we are going to film here among the Osage, which he had known uh, was our uh, big concern at the time. But as soon as he said that with such conviction, I immediately offered him access to all of our language people, all of our people who uh, uh are familiar with our traditional clothes and so on. And then I assigned my chief advisor, John Williams, to uh, be with Marty Scorsese as close as possible. He ended up having a chair, a director's chair, on set and set during the filming. And it's important that John's contribution be recognized because he has all the credentials. He's a was the traditional drum keeper of the gray horse ceremonial drum. And then at the time of the movie, uh, he was senior advisor to the gray horse ceremonies. Uh, so he also was a man who uh, we relied upon for guidance, uh, especially during this movie. He has since passed. He did see uh, the first screening of the movie, thank goodness. And that's how that developed. It was through our people working with the team of Marty Scorsese. And it was not just one event, it was a process. This might sound like an obvious question, but why was that so important? Well, uh, we have been stereotyped uh, and it's being told uh, our story by others besides us. And in this movie, I can tell you, and in the book, it took a deep cooperation with the Osage people to, uh, as David will tell you, to write the book and to uh, produce this movie. Our people were, as Marty says, 
uh, not only in front of the camera as extras and, and others in, in the set and the ceremonies, etc., but we were behind the camera. Our younger people, especially, were able to work with world-class professionals in the film industry. And so, David, when you were writing this book, um, you had to grapple with these things too, right? You're not Indigenous. You're also not from Oklahoma. So how did you reckon with that, this, you know, movies of the past, books of the past, these kind of tropes, the Pocahontas, the dances with the wolves that have sort of veered into white savior territory. How did you reckon with that as you were writing? Yeah, I mean, whenever you, uh, as a reporter and as a historian, by the very nature of what you do, you are an outsider. I don't write memoirs. I don't write about myself. And that involves uh, always moral complications. And in a case like this, when you're writing about a deeply traumatic history, uh, a history in which whites perpetrated crimes against members of the Osage Nation, uh, white settlers did, you just have to be so conscious always of that. And then the way I approached it was just to try to be as transparent as possible to express why I was there and to ask questions. And as Chief described, you know, I got to know, um, I would stay there for weeks and weeks and months and months each year. And I worked on it for more than half a decade. And over time, I just got to know, especially a lot of the Osage elders and each one would then introduce me to another elder and they would share me, share with me their story. And as a reporter and as a historian, what you're doing is you are documenting and recording and that is really what I tried to do. And then as I did to make sure I went over that documentation that I got it right and to check those facts. And as, as the chief also said, the book would not exist. I mean, it is a record of many, many oral histories and also documents and records that were trusted with me. And my only hope um, when you do something like this is that you both earn the trust and you reward that trust with the you know, with the final outcome. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. This is The Sunday Magazine, and I'm speaking with author David Gran and Osage Nation Chief Jeffrey Standing Bear about Killers of the Flower Moon. David's the author of the book by that name, and now it's been turned into a film by Martin Scorsese that tells the real story of death and betrayal in an Oklahoma Indigenous community. There will be many reviews of this film. There already have been some. Um, uh, Christopher Cote, an Osage language consultant, saw it, um, and he, uh, quote, he had mixed feelings about it. He told The Hollywood Reporter that even though he believes Marty Scorsese did a great job representing the Osage people, he was conflicted about the sympathetic depiction of Ernest Burkhardt, who's the white man responsible for some of the murders. Chief Standing Bear, what do you, what do you make of that criticism? These are complex and complicated stories, um, but what do you make of that? Well, Chris is a, a great talent, and he uh, was uh, deeply involved with the language uh, preparation. Uh, when I first met Robert De Niro, he goes, do you know my language coach, uh, Chris Kotak? Hmm. And I go, yes, yes, I do. But Chris is, I think, uh, expressing what many of our younger people are correctly expressing is the story itself is something we haven't really, my generation, haven't really shared, talked about for a lot of reasons. We weren't there. We heard stories of our elders. And I can assure you, I'm married to an Osage. My children are Osage. Uh, grandchildren are Osage. Uh, I don't talk to them about this mm. until now. But I have noticed the younger people are mad uh, about it. 
bad about the story. And uh, it had to be told now that I see this happening because it's, it's a discussion that's long overdue. And interestingly, in Mexico City just recently, I saw a, a journalist uh, talking about this and asking me, uh, like you are, of my views. And then they would say, this story is familiar to us. And, uh, uh, and they're talking about their own indigenous population. And, and I just have to respond, well, that's something I need to study. So uh, this discussion will continue for years. Yeah. The, so many of the issues at the heart of Killers of the Flower Moon are experienced by many indigenous communities across North America. In our country, hundreds of indigenous communities still grappling with the intergenerational trauma from the abuses and deaths at residential schools and their protests over resource extraction. The construction of pipelines has created a lot of tension between communities and our governments and broader society. And so, Chief Stanningberry, you said, you know, when the young people say they're angry and maybe they don't know a lot of this, but, but they want what we here in our country um, refer to as reconciliation. When you hear that from your, the young people of your nation, what, what goes through your mind? Well, first of all, when we talk about sovereignty, which is a big term for us, we understand there are two aspects of this. There is the external sovereignty where we interface with local governments and the United States federal government. And uh, that is a constantly shifting relationship. Then there's the internal sovereignty. Internal is where uh, we define ourselves through our language and our culture and our territories. And we take care of each other within that time. And we learned this during the pandemic in March of 2020, when my staff came to me and said, Chief, we have no meat. And our children programs and elder programs, there, it, there was just a complete shutdown of the food supply network. Now we have a meat processing plant. We have herds of bison and cattle. Uh, we are uh, we built a new greenhouse. It's a 40,000 square foot greenhouse. So these are not small issues. We're going to take care of each other and we have to. And that that's what this is about. And so if, if we had that going in the 1920s, I think a lot of this tragedy could have been avoided if we take responsibility for our own actions and not rely on the government and merchants, but take care of ourselves. That's the lesson for me in this story. David, as part of the efforts at reconciliation, education is, is such a big component of that. And your book comes into play because, of course, as you well know, some Oklahoma teachers are concerned that a law passed in the state in 2021 regulating classroom discussion of race and gender could could bar them from putting your book and this history in front of kids. Killers of the Flower Moon may not be on the curriculum. What does that say to you about the political landscape when teachers are fearful that they could face repercussions for assigning your book, teaching American students about their history, their collective history? Yeah, I mean, one of the tragedies about this history early on was that it was it was initially distorted and then erased um, from curriculums. I mean, outside the Osage Nation, it, this wasn't taught, it wasn't learned. And now we are at this really pivotal moment when there is this opportunity, um, as the chief said, to really begin these conversations, uh, to learn about our history. And yet, um, there is this law passed in Oklahoma is written in this very 
vague way that has led some teachers to fear that they can't talk about this history or the Tulsa race massacre um, because they might lose their accreditation or their or their licenses. And I think that would just be a terrible mistake because the truth is history shapes us uh, no matter what. Um, but if we ignore it, it festers, it distorts us, it creates grievances. And so the trick for us is to harness history and, and take from it and learn from it, both the, you know, the stirring and the triumphant, but also the cautionary and the truth. Um, and that's how we learn how to be the kind of people and nation we want to be. And so I, I think it's essential um, that this history uh, be taught. I can't see why it shouldn't be. Um, but I'd be really curious to hear the chief's thoughts on this. In our small way, we have been building our own private school system. And there the Osage language is uh, primary as much as we can. And our traditions and culture are honored in ways we could not do in a public system. Uh, but that is our solution. And uh, it's expensive, yes. And getting teachers is hard, especially in rural areas. Uh, but that is a way we believe we can continue a free and open discussion. You, you cannot keep important information secret forever. Uh, and the good things will last and continue, and there will be a record somewhere. Although lots may be lost, uh, I, I was just, like I said, uh, in Mexico City, I could not help but think about how much of their uh, tribal historic record was lost, but there was so much kept. And that's how we did. There are sayings of our elders, be good to one another, they say. Follow the drum, put respect first. All these sayings are the sayings of the ancient ones. And we keep those important lessons close to us. We may have lost so much, but we keep what we can. David, you spent years researching, working on this book, poring over those historical documents, interviewing families. But at some point, you put the book out into the world and you, you stepped away from it, or at least, you know, from the writing of it and putting it out there. How... How has, though, this all changed you, or has it? You know, I think that when I worked on the book for all those years, um, I, you know, I really wasn't sure if people would read it. Um, I didn't really know if it was the kind of history that, you know, people would be willing to read. And so I have been struck that people have received it um, and have read it. But the thing that was most important to me when I wrote that book was to address my own ignorance. I mean, and that's really how I go about life. I'm always just trying to address my own ignorance. And that's why I go from one project to another. And and I was just shocked by how that I didn't know anything about this. And so when I worked on the story, I, I did that and hopefully tried to address, you know, the ignorance outside the Osage Nation. And now that there is a film... I think the real change is that this conversation now has a chance to grow. And Chief had said it, it will go on for years and years. And I think that's how history grows. You know, history to me is always a living organism. It is a dynamic process. It is not static. It is not defined in one book. It is not defined in a movie, no matter how great that movie it is. It, it grows through conversation, through new voices, through conversations like we're having now, any other conversations that will hopefully take place, new records that will be found, new stories that will be heard. Um, and to me, that is hopefully, I'm hopeful that will be the real change. At the end of 
the book, there's a quote about the Osage Nation that really um, struck with me, and especially kind of in these messy times in our world. And, and the quote reads, as you both will well know, today our hearts are divided between two worlds. We are strong and courageous, learning to walk in these two worlds, hanging on to the threads of our culture and traditions. Chief Standing Bear, you talked about um, the teachings of your ancestors and that being passed on. When you hear those words, that quote, what does it make you think? The same thing. I, that, that was well said. Our people uh, really must turn to higher authority like we all should for guidance. Uh, this is a lesson I've learned and I'm thankful for it. And uh, we, we have to find our strength all around us, as the elders would say. Everything you want to know is right, right in front of you. And uh, uh, we, we call it Wanach uh, Ali, the Holy Spirit. And I'm not trying to be religious to everybody, but they always uh, talk about that power, those old folks. And uh, I'm starting to get a glimpse of what they, what they mean. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I say, Ueno. Is that how I say thank you? Uena. Is, uh, short- now they've been doing that more recently. Uh, shortcut. Uh, I know the men would say "Vali Wajoa," which means "You did good." Thank you both. I appreciate so much you both sharing your thoughts and for teaching us this history. So many people didn't know. Appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wayona. David Gran is the author of Killers of the Flower Moon, which Martin Scorsese has adapted for his latest movie. Jeffrey Standing Bear is the principal chief of the Osage Nation. And you can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine by heading to our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks for lending us your ear. We'll talk to you again on Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.